0: That was rather a lot of words of God. So thank you for sitting through both of those readings. I know it, it is a lot, but throughout this series, we're going to be using two scriptures for each of these weeks. Because one of the things that happens as you read through the Bible is you find that it is in communication with itself, that when you put different parts of it next to each other, you can find that they speak in harmony, that they help lift up the themes and the messages that are there for us to uh, experience and consider today. And so today on the second day of the Easter season, a season which incidentally is 50 days long compared to Lent's 40, because it's good to spend longer celebrating than you do preparing for the celebration, because the celebration is the good part. This second Sunday in Easter, we have the story of Thomas, who missed seeing Jesus on the day of Easter. And we have a reading from the epistle, the first book of John, talking about the Easter story, but in a little bit of a hidden way that we'll work to pull out a bit this morning. And we're going to do all of this knowing that the world is a sometimes gray, rainy, dreary place, and we have known our share of difficulties and troubles. And we could say that at any time, in any place, but perhaps particularly so in this current stretch of years. But As comes from my favorite movie musical, Singing in the Rain, Gene Kelly once sang The Suns in My Heart, I'm singing, singing in the rain. As Easter people, we can do just that. We can dare to dance again, learn the movements that God has called us to, stepping out together in the dances of hope and justice and love. And so we begin this week with a week after story, the story that begins in the confines of doubt and exclusion, but breaks forth into a dance of belief and inclusion. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Eight days. Eight days. Days stretched between Thomas's declaration, unless I see Jesus, I won't believe, and the day when he did, in fact, see Jesus. Eight stifling, empty, sightless days. Can we imagine? When I was growing up, I was fascinated by a set of two or three books that my family kept on top of the entertainment console in our living room. You might be familiar with them if you lived through a certain stretch in the 1990s when these books were a particular fad. They had a strange sort of repeating bizarre picture on the cover, and every one of them was titled, Magic Eye. We have a picture of them, I think, on the perfect to screen. The screen. If you lived through that, you may recognize what's going on in that absolutely bizarre picture. This and what the books were filled with were optical illusions, a very modern take on this old principle which discovered that you can create the illusion of depth in a 2D image because depth, as we perceive it, comes not from the eyes but from the brain. And so at the advent of computer technology in the early 90s, they could create these images that looked like this, but if you looked at them in a certain way would suddenly have depth and you would see something popping out at you. And so all you had to do to see it was to relax your eyes and let them come into focus as though you were looking through the pages of the book. They suggested bringing the book right up to your nose and then backing it out slowly until it all leapt off the page at you. But not everyone could see these hidden images all that easily, or in fact, at all, And I was one of the ones who couldn't see anything except for just the flat surface of the page. So far as I can remember, everyone else around me, my mother, my father, my three brothers, could all see the illusion. And so I'd ask them what each image was on each of the pages, what it was supposed to be. You know, there'd be a horse on this one or a boat on that one. And I would sit and I would stare at the page as if I could will myself into seeing this hidden picture. I desperately wanted to see because I didn't want to be left out. I mean, there's nothing all that important about managing to see the magic eye parlor trick, except that everyone else around me could, and it hurts to be excluded from a group and an experience that you want to be a part of. Neuroscience studies have actually shown that when we feel socially excluded, it hurts in a real physical way, that in fact our brain processes those emotions in the same place that we process the physical pain we feel when our body is hurting in a physical way. Because we're social creatures. We're designed to live and to thrive in community. And so our bodies interpret being left out of the group as a threat. And in fact, our brain chemistry shifts in an effort to protect our now vulnerable self if we feel that we're being left out. There's myelin sheathing, on existing neural pathways, that when we feel like we're being left out, um, increases and pushes us to focus on survival without considering new or novel solutions. Our working memory actually contracts so much that, so that we can't be distracted by non-essential ideas, but also means we can't do a very good job at problem solving. And cell density in the amygdala increases, which means that we become reactive instead of self-controlled. We are prepared physically in our body's chemistry and in our minds to freeze, uh, fight, or flee. It's probably impossible to go through life without experiencing how this feels in one way or another. I'm guessing that all of us have. We know how it feels to be excluded, suddenly left out of a group, unable to share in some formative experience, pushed to the side or left behind, and we struggle to fight our way back in. I want to see Jesus, Thomas said, unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, and I put my finger in those nail hands. Unless I see his wounded side, I won't believe. We tend to define Thomas by this moment. For centuries in the church, we've called him Doubting Thomas, and it's not all that uncommon to scoff at what seems like a very brazen request, or we dismiss him for being cold or heartless and not believing. The presumption seems to be that he should have believed the good news. The other disciples were telling it to him right then and there. We overlook the fact that the other disciples didn't believe it themselves until Jesus showed up physically in front of them. What Thomas is asking for is to share in the same experience that the other disciples have already had. On the evening of Easter, the gospel writer tells us. The disciples are all cowering in fear. They've locked themselves in a room together when suddenly Jesus appears among them. Peace be with you is what he says, and he shows them his hands and his side. It's really him. And the disciples are overjoyed, and Jesus breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit in that breath, and then Jesus is gone. And it's only then, only then that the gospel writer pauses to tell us that, by the way, Thomas wasn't there. All of the other disciples were, but not Thomas, which is enough to make anybody feel like an afterthought. And is that when the other disciples realized it too? Only after Jesus has left did they look around and go, wait a minute, where is Thomas? And we don't know where Thomas was. And so neither do we know why none of the other disciples said, Jesus, could you hold on just a moment? We'd like to go get Thomas. For this, no one rushes out to get Thomas, and in fact, there's no rushing at all in this story. As the Easter story goes, it starts with lots of rushing. Mary is going to the tomb, and it's empty, and she rushes to the disciples to tell them, and some of the disciples rush back to the tomb to find that it's empty, and then Mary sees Jesus in the garden, and she rushes from the garden to go tell the disciples. And The disciples wait in a locked room until Jesus shows up, and then they too believe, and they... Don't go anywhere. They just wait for Thomas to get back and then they tell him, We've seen the Lord. And they're overjoyed, but I wonder how it feels for Thomas. Thomas, the only one with enough bravery or faith or whatever else it takes to be the only one not locked alone in a room or locked away in a room, huddled in fear on the evening of the resurrection. As the rest of the disciples are feeling the Holy Spirit breathed into them, now living in them, while Thomas is feeling like all the breath has been knocked out of him. Unless I see the nail marks and put my fingers in the nail holes and in his wounded side, I won't believe, Thomas says. And you can almost hear the implication there, just like all of you had the chance to do. Thomas was not about to settle for a second-class citizenship in the kingdom of God, forever a step outside of the jubilant inn crowd because somebody had to go out and buy groceries on Sunday evening because the disciples needed to eat. We can imagine, perhaps, the other disciples tried to share their joy with Thomas. They would have told him, well, we saw the Lord, but it would have been hard to include him. They might have trailed off at times, had difficulty describing the awe and the joy of it, and maybe they would have said, well, you know, you really just had to be there. Before too long, they probably learned to be quiet around Thomas. When Thomas would enter the room, their conversations would still and come to a stop. Maybe they would even start to nurture a small grudge that Thomas had to keep hanging around with this disbelief on such display. Couldn't he just keep his distance until he figured things out for himself. And so, eight days pass. Eight very long days for Thomas to have felt so alone. And then Jesus is there. Jesus is there offering his hands and his side and his love to the disciple who felt so unloved. My Lord and my God, Thomas says, It is a wonderful moment, and Jesus does not seem to mind one bit coming back just for Thomas. Though he does leave on a puzzling note. Do you believe because you see me? Jesus asks, and then he says, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Now, Jesus here isn't saying that Thomas shouldn't have needed to see him. It's really more of an example to the remaining disciples about what their sight is, is for about how they can be a blessing to others. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Because how can you believe what you can't see except by borrowing the sight of one who can? The church has long known that ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven, as he's going to do after these appearances to disciples, that we can still have experiences with the risen Christ, we can see and find ourselves with Christ because Christ abides with us still. But more often than not, we don't start in those revelatory moments. We start with someone else's experience, being welcomed in before we have any faith or any belief of our own, before we've encountered the risen Christ with our own eyes or our own hands. And this is where the epistle of 1 John begins. We announce to you what we have heard, the author writes, but also what we have seen, what we have touched, which is the Christ, the very word of life. As Jesus came back to Thomas, demonstrating to the disciples how to welcome the excluded back in, the author of this epistle knows that their experience as those who have seen and touched can be shared to increase the community, must be shared to welcome others into the fellowship that they have. Because they have met Jesus, and they are in fellowship with Jesus. And by the sharing of what they know, what they have seen and touched and experienced, they can welcome others in to that very same earthly divine fellowship. And those who are welcomed in may also have an experience with Christ of their own in time. But until then, they can rely on the experiences of those who have welcomed them in. And the epistle continues in this theme, even though if it doesn't quite seem like it does, because there's a bit of a topic shift from this on into the theme of sin and forgiveness. If we say we have no sin, the epistle says, then we deceive ourselves. Because what serves to limit participation in a church and a congregation more? What serves to exclude and ostracize more than the idea that you have to be perfect to join? And so often the church has made exactly this claim, has used this to limit who is welcomed in on grounds of whether you are sinless enough or not. But the author here is very clear. The church is not a sinless place. The church is a place of forgiveness and confession. The church is the place to work out the difficulties of what even is sin and what is not. What is the Christian standard we should be held to? And what is the diversity of the people that God has created? Welcome everybody on in, the epistle says, and then just go from there. Because we don't want to leave anyone out. And so it continues and it says, Christ is God's way of dealing with our sins, and not only ours, speaking from the epistle, but the whole world. The movement of God in Christ is to welcome all people into fellowship with the Trinity, to see the Holy Spirit moving and working in all people, forgiving and loving all people, not stopping until the outward reach of the church holds the entire world in its grasp. Jesus didn't mind coming back for Thomas. And Jesus doesn't mind coming back for any of us ever, anywhere, to include us in this community of faith. When we, the church, declare ourselves to be the body of Christ, this is what it means. To stand in front of those who aren't sure, but want to be a part of what God is doing. To proclaim that death is not the end, that the scars remain, but life and love have won out. Now, it's not always easy, this business of including everyone in the embrace of community. There's a story about a white church in the midst of the civil rights movement of the last century when it moved to integrate its congregation. It was a difficult decision, um, particularly in a time when there were some white churches who were hiring guards to keep black Americans from worshiping in their sanctuaries. But this one church felt brave enough at least to gather their deacons it was a congregational church. The deacons were the leaders of the church make this decision, brave enough to gather them and ask the question. And they were split. They were divided, and they debated until they found themselves in a true 50-50 stalemate. And then one lone deacon changed to a yes vote. The church would integrate. And one of these deacons went home to tell his mother. She immediately asked, of course, she said, what did you decide? And he said, we decided to let them attend services. And she retorted, you know, I am very much opposed to that. He said, I know, mother, but think about it this way. What would Jesus do? She said, I know good and well what he'd do. He'd say, let him in. And she paused for a moment, and then she added, but he'd be wrong. It's difficult work, this dance of the church from the very beginning, to let the good news that has so overjoyed us find its way into the sight of those around us. But Jesus keeps coming back to do what we know Jesus does, to let everybody in. And Jesus will do it with or without us. I'm pretty sure Jesus is right about this. And it seems that God's favorite way is to work through the body of Christ, through we who are the hands and the feet and the scarred side of the risen Christ, if we are willing to be part of this dance to welcome everyone in, if we are willing to get to be part of that wonderful message that Jesus proclaimed without a single word standing in front of Thomas, God is here for you, and you have a place in this community. God is here for all of us, and all of us have a place in this community. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to st-